this evening we're going to talk about a subject called this generation. This generation. I want to first begin in a passage of scripture that you're all familiar with, but I'm going to start with a quotation. In this quotation, I want you to get the context of what we're going to study. We find here in CTR 93 paragraph 2, it says, The great controversy between the prince of life and the prince of darkness has been going forward, strengthening with each successive generation. Severe indeed has been the conflict waged between right and wrong, between truth and error, between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Truth has fought against error and error against truth. The conflict has existed for how long, my friends? Thousands of years. So the idea is very simple. See, none of us are a thousand years old. Anybody a thousand in here? Nobody's a thousand years old. And this says thousands of years, this conflict has been going forward. So essentially, the idea is very simple, that when we were born, we were born into a conflict. When we were born, we were born into a warfare. I think about it all the time. In the Middle East, you know, they have bombs going off here and there. Is that right? They have young children that are afraid to walk the streets. In fact, in Chicago right now, people are shooting each other at a high clip. There is warfare going on on earth, but my friends, the celestial warfare has been going on for thousands of years, and you have been born in the midst of a conflict. Now, I have a question to ask you. You give me an answer. If you've been born in the midst of a conflict, how come we feel so at ease? If we're in the midst of a war, how come we are so dignified and simple? If we were at war, and if we knew we were at war, if we knew there was a spiritual warfare, I wonder how much more intensely we would pray. I wonder how much more deeply we would open the Bible and we would study it if we truly understood and we truly realized that we are in the midst of a war. But I want to show you something else. I, I have a little chart. It may not make a lot of sense to you, but it just made sense for me. I have this uh, arrow up here with the woman, and then I have a dragon at the bottom. And then I have the beginning of time. That little blue line means the beginning of time. And that other blue line at the end is the end of time. And in the middle is this warfare that we're talking about. Now, this warfare on the planet Earth began with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve and then the serpent. The serpent is a symbol of the dragon's side. Adam and Eve is a symbol of God's side. There's always a contrarian war. You have Abel and his descendants. You have Noah and Abraham. These are faithful children of God, sentinels of the guardians of the covenant. And then you have Cain and his descendants, Noah and his descendants, Nimrod, and the list can go on. All these pagan powers always fighting against the people of God. And this track has been constant. There's always only been two sides. Then we have the children of Israel, God's chosen people. God took them out of the land of Egypt, gave them the Ten Commandments, had them wandering in the wilderness as a means of sanctification. And as they're wandering along, you had the, the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Perizzites and the Ammonites and all the ites. The Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Chaldeans, all, all these powers constantly rubbing against and fighting against the people of God, getting God's people to come off the track that God has designed or had designed for them. And then we have the Christian church, because after the children of Israel, God had a chosen people. The chosen people were the, was the Christian church, the apostles and whatnot. And then there's papal Rome. Papal Rome rises up against the Christian church to seek to stamp out the reality of God's promise of the power of the gospel. But then lastly, we have our generation. This generation, we call ourselves the remnant church, the chosen people of God. And coming against the remnant church, we have Babylon the Great. Now, my friends, I want you to understand that in every generation, there has been a warfare, there has been a conflict, there has been a contrarian power. And I tell you, we're at the end of all these things. We're at the end. So I'm thinking to myself, if the enemy knows that he's at the end, we know that he knows that his time is short. We know that he's amping up his game. He's seeking to separate us from the almighty God. I just want to know, and I'm asking you, do you realize that you are in the midst of a war? Now I want to show you some pictures here. Again, the guardians of the covenant are in blue. The rise of the rebellion is in red. Again, the question is, 
Whose side are you on? Who will you serve? This is a serpent. That's a little, some people like serpents. I have a friend who likes to hold these type of creatures. Do you like to hold those creatures? I'm not that type of guy. This is not a pet that I want to have in my house. This makes me feel completely uncomfortable. How about you? This is a picture of a serpent, and I want you to go to the book of Revelation for a moment as we begin our Bible study this evening. I want you to track with me because we're going to begin where we're very familiar, and then we're going to deal with some very heavy concepts. Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to begin reading at verse number 1. The Bible says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Please notice verse number 7. Verse 7 says, And there was war in heaven, war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And that great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth how much of the world? The whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So let's pause for a moment. Let's think. Here you have a pregnant woman. Anybody seen a pregnant woman before? Yes, I've seen pregnant women. Very beautiful. And as you see these pregnant women, do you see them moving in any rapid speed, any fast movements? Especially when they're about to give birth. Do you see any of that? In fact, I, I often see them kind of... You see that? Having to support themselves as they're beginning to sit down. And I think to myself, if a pregnant woman is running from a dragon, do you think that's a fair competition? Do you think that's a fair fight? The woman is at a disadvantage. Is that right, my friends? But I want you to notice the text. Go back to the text for a moment. And I want you to see right here in the text, in verse number four, it says very clearly, and it tells you the third part of the stars of heaven, it did cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. So my question to you is very simple. The dragon's attention. Who's the dragon's attention on? The child. The dragon is not paying attention to the woman per se. The dragon has a direct bullseye on the child. Now tonight, our objective of our study is to find out why the devil was so keen on that child. Is that okay? If we can figure out why the devil was so keen on that child, we can understand and begin to understand the plan of salvation and begin to get ready to see our coming king. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Bible says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt what? So here is the first promise of the Messiah. The Messiah is here promised, and it says very clearly, I will put enmity. Someone from the congregation, if you don't mind, please share with me. What does the word enmity mean? Hatred. Extreme, violent hatred. So here, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it the seed shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This promise scared Lucifer stiff. This promise signified not only that the seed was coming, but that the seed would crush his head. Are you following so far? The idea is very simple. In this promise, we have the promise of the plan of salvation in a nutshell. 
But let's look a little more carefully. I, I decided to do a little diagram just for my brain cells as I'm trying to understand this great plan of salvation. We see here Satan has a seed. Because it says Satan and thy seed, and then it says the woman has a seed. Do you see that? Satan has a seed, and the woman has a seed. Two contrarian powers. I want you to notice something else about the text. You'll see it here on the screen. It's a covenant that is made. And I want you to see it very carefully. It says God, because it says I will put enmity. Who's saying that? God is saying that. God will put enmity between the woman and the serpent. God will put enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. The seed will crush the head of the serpent. And finally, the serpent will bruise his heel. Now, I want you to open your Bibles. Go to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians. Galatians chapter 3. And we're looking now at verse number 16. Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 16. And we're laying a foundation in our study. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. The Bible says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, which is who, my friends? So the seed is who? The seed is Christ. So again, keep this in your mind. The seed that is being promised here, the woman that is about to give birth to this child, this child is Christ. And there's something about Christ and his birth that will bring the complete and utter destruction of Lucifer. But let's go a little bit further. When will this transpire? I want you to keep that question in mind. We're going to progressively seek to answer that as we go along. So again, we have the woman... We have the dragon, we have the woman and the dragon. You guys want to see that again? We have the woman, we have the dragon, and we have the woman and the dragon. And the reason why I'm showing this again, because it's, it really only comes down to two powers. I don't care if you say you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Episcopalian, it doesn't matter. It really only comes down to two powers, the church on God's side, and we have the dragon and his side. There's only two signs. Now, I'm going to investigate just a tad bit more again in an area that you're very familiar with, but I want to just bring some solid points home. Go to the book of Revelation again. Now we're looking at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20. Notice here what the scriptures have to say. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20. The Bible says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in thy right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the, what's it say? Are the angels. So stars in Bible prophecy can symbolize what, my friends? Angels. So when you go back and you see the dragon used his tail to take down one-third of the stars, we're saying the dragon used his tail to take down one-third of the what? Angels. Very good. Now I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 15. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 15. And notice what the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 15. The Bible says, the ancient and honorable, he is the what? What does it say? He is the head. And the prophet that teaches lies, he is the? He is the tail. So we can back up and say, the dragon used his tail or he used lies to take down one third of the angel. So now what we need to do is identify what this lie or these lies were. And we're going to do it by God's grace from the scripture. I want you now, you're in the book of Isaiah. I just want you to go right over a couple of chapters to Isaiah chapter 14. Again, familiar passage. Isaiah chapter 14, and we're looking at verse number 12. Isaiah chapter 14, and we're looking at verse number 12. The Bible says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst what, my friends? So what are the two questions? How did you fall, and how did you weaken the nations? How did you fall, and how did you weaken the nations? Verse 13, it says, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, 
I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like, what's it say, my friends? The Most High. So here we know very simply Lucifer has a, he has an eye problem. Personal question, just a self-examination question. You don't have to answer this out loud. You need to answer it inside yourself. Do you have an eye problem? Remember, I told you there's only two powers. Do you have an eye problem? Now, there's a way to know if you have an eye problem. If everything always bothers you. It's, it's not, does it violate God's law? It's not, does it hurt God's heart? It's not, are people suffering every day? It's more like, they're getting on my nerves. That's a self-centered, self-focused viewpoint. Am I right or wrong? I think I'm right. It's an eye problem. So here, Lucifer has an eye problem. He wants to exalt. He wants to uplift. He wants to be like the Most High. And when we say like the Most High, he doesn't want to be more loving. He doesn't want to be more kind. That's not his, that's not his idea. He wants the position, prerogatives, and power of God. He has an eye problem. But let's go a tad bit further. I want you now to go with me over to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel, and here we will begin to examine uh, Ezekiel chapter 28. We'll begin to examine even further this idea. Ezekiel, the 28th chapter. Ezekiel, the 28th chapter, and we're looking at verse number 12. Ezekiel, the 28th chapter, and we're looking at verse number 12. And notice what the Bible says. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, now watch this now, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Pause, wait a minute, and think. Thou sealest up the sum. In other words, there's nothing more that I can add to this perfection in regards to this created being. You are the completeness of completeness of perfection. Now, I'm saying this to you because think about it for a moment. Lucifer is the most perfect being ever created, and perfection failed in heaven. This is the sum. You were full of wisdom, and you were perfect in beauty. Verse 13 says, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, and the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabernacles and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Watch this. Not only was he perfect, not only is he made out of all these beautiful gemstones, which I'll show you on the screen in a moment, but watch the next part, my friends. It says, thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. Now, listen. Now, when you go to the sanctuary, you start looking at the things that are anointed. All the, the furniture is anointed with oil. The, the sanctuary itself is anointed with oil. The curtains are anointed. Everything's anointed with oil. And when you look at David when he's anointed with oil, immediately upon receiving the anointing, the Holy Spirit descends upon David, and he is now endowed with the Spirit of God. So when we're talking about Lucifer, Lucifer was not just a created angel. Lucifer was full of the Holy Ghost. Are y'all getting this thing? Lucifer was full of the Holy Ghost. He was an anointed, covering cherub. And God says, and I have, he wasn't just put there. God chose him and placed him in that position. Now, again, we're bringing this point out because now if you begin to understand the wily foe and his position, you begin to understand why we are in such a dangerous position if we don't recognize that we're in a warfare. He was an anointed covering cherub. Let's go a little bit further with this. I put a picture of the sanctuary up here. Here you can see there the altar of uh, sacrifice. Then you have the laver, that bowl of water there. That's the laver. Inside the sanctuary, you have the holy place. In the holy place, there are three major pieces of furniture. You have the candlestick. 
you have the shoe bread, you have the altar of incense. These are three major components in the compartment of the holy place. And inside the most holy place, you have the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, you have this, these angels. These are the anointed covering cherubs. I want you to please take note mentally what you see here on the screen. These angels, in fact, when you read about them in Exodus chapter 25, they have wings that touch at the top and their wings go like this. So they only have two wings. They look directly into the presence of God, into the very Shekinah glory of the Most High. Now keep that picture in mind. Hold your hand right here in Ezekiel. And I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 6. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and beginning at verse number 1, pay, pay close, close attention. I'm reviewing what you already know. By God's grace, it will be more clear. Now, Isaiah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, the Bible says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his... What's it say, my friends? Now, my friends, this passage, I don't have time to really unlock, but this passage is really the, a passage dealing with the most holy place experience. Do you realize at some point in our experience, my friends, we're going to enter into this presence and have this type of experience? In fact, can I just throw this out here? You can possibly have this experience here on this campground. You see, the only thing that separates God from showing up in great, magnificent glory is sin. It's not the amount of people. Listen, if you want to draw close to God, if you want God to speak to you, if you want him to come near, if you want to experience him, there's no reason why you can't have this experience here. I'm going to show you as we go throughout the weeks, when the Holy Spirit comes, it's closer than if Jesus Christ was standing on this platform himself. I'll show you. So here in this great throne room experience, Isaiah sees God high lifted up. His train fills the temple. He has, these angels have six wings. Two of them cover the feet. Two of them fly, but two do what? What do they do with the other two? They cover their face. Now think about this for a moment. These are angels that have never sinned. They have, they have never done anything wrong. They have never lied, cheated, stolen anything, committed adultery. They've never broken the Sabbath. But these holy angels, when they come into the presence of God, don't even dare to look upon them. In fact, all they can cry is, I'm wondering. And I'm praying, actually. Father, I, I want a taste of that type of experience. Don't think that that's something that's far distant. God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't love Isaiah more than he loves you. He doesn't love Moses more than he loves you. He wants to have that experience where he comes close to you. The only thing that stops God from coming close is sin. The only thing that stops him from coming close is sin. So the question would be, Father, what is in my heart, what is in my life that is hindering you from coming close to me? That's the question. These angels that have never sinned cover their face. But you notice these angels don't cover their face. I'm, I'm doing the distinction on purpose. Lucifer was an angel that did not cover his face. He had direct access to God. He got to look directly into God's presence. And it's from that experience, my friends, that he walks away. It's from that experience, my friends, that he walks away from God and begins to disseminate lies 
and gossip. False tales about God. So that most holy place, this angel's in there. Now, mind you, these are all the gemstones. I looked them all up. Now, some of these can actually be different colors depending upon the pressure and all these different things that happens in the earth. But these are the sardis and the diamonds and the topaz and all that stuff. This is what Lucifer was made out of. This was what he was blinging with. So now, now, mind you, he's made out of these things, and he's walking in the direct presence of God. Can you imagine the glory that is emanating from this angel? This is a beautiful angel, a privileged angel. This is the sum of the matter, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. How art thou fallen, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut to the ground, which did his It baffles the mind. It doesn't make any sense. You get to look in the presence of God and walk away. But wait. <laughs> Let's go a little bit further. So here, gonna, here in the sanctuary, I want to highlight a couple of things. And we're going to stay on the screen for a few moments. And the purpose of this is to do a quick survey of several passages and highlight a principle. So we're not changing the story, we're just shifting the focus. In Numbers chapter 1, verse 50, the Bible says, But thou shalt appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of what's it called, my friend? So the tabernacle or the sanctuary is called the testimony or the tabernacle of testimony. Let's go a little bit further. Exodus 25, verse 30 says, And thou shalt set upon the table shoe bread before me always. How, how often is the bread supposed to be there? Always. We'll go a little bit further here. It says, Exodus 20 and verse 20, And thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring the pure oil olive beaten from the light to cause the lamp to burn. How often, my friends? So notice that the table of shoe bread was to have that bread there always, and the light was to burn continually or always. Now watch the next part. In the tabernacle of the congregation without the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall order it from the evening to morning. So if you were looking at the sanctuary, based on this text, where was the candlestick supposed to be? Before the what? Before the what? What does it say? Right there in the yellow, what does it say? Before the testimony. Very good, stay with me. Don't worry, there's going to be a quiz. You won't be able to go to bed. Exodus 30, verse 1 says, And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon, of shittim which shalt thou make it, and thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the, what's it say? Do you notice now that every time the furniture is mentioned, it mentions it in relation to the ark of the testimony? Do you notice that the tabernacle is called the tabernacle of the testimony. Would, if I were to do a quiz and ask you, what is the most important thing in the sanctuary? I, I hope you will come up with the right answer. So let's go. And thou shalt beat some of it very small and put it before the, what's it say? Before the testimony of the tabernacle of the congregation. Notice again. Notice this. Exodus 25, 21. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I should give thee. Notice again, and thou shalt hang up the veil under the tashes, thou shalt, that thou mayest bring it thither within the veil, the ark of the testimony, and the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. Again, just observation, watch this. And the Lord said unto Moses, bring Aaron's rod again before the, what's it say? Before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels, and thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me that they die not. Let's go a little further. Verse 36, Exodus 16, 33. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a pot and put an armor full of manna therein, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. And the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it before the... Ah, so Aaron's rod, the pot of manna, the candlestick the showbread, the tabernacle itself, all references and centers around this testimony. Are you with me, my friends? All right. 
Notice this. And he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon the Mount Sinai, two tables of, what's it say? Testimony, tables of stone, written with what, my friends? So tell me, what is the testimony? It's the law. It's God's Ten Commandments. Are you with me? So Lucifer was an anointed covering cherub. His responsibility was to protect and preserve and communicate the testimony. That's his job. That's his responsibility. Now, in the same vein, we're doing a Bible study. Is that okay we do a Bible study? All right. Just want to make sure it's okay. Psalms. Proverbs. I'll go Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34. Go to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 34. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 34. The Bible says, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to how many people? Any people. So righteousness, remember we asked the question, Lucifer, Lucifer, how did you weaken the nations? What did you do to weaken the nations? But we know that righteousness exalts a nation. So if righteousness exalts a nation, the opposite of righteousness would be sin or unrighteousness. Is that right? So Lucifer, in order to weaken a nation, must cause a nation to sin. In fact, go to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16. And we're going to begin reading. At verse number 12, Proverbs chapter 16 and verse number 12. Notice what the Bible says. It is an abomination to kings to commit, what does it say? Wickedness. It's an abomination to kings to commit wickedness. For the throne is established by what, my friends? So the throne is established by righteousness. So in order for a nation to be weakened, righteousness must be attacked. Righteousness must be discarded. So it's not hard to know if a nation is going to fall. Tell me. You don't have to be rocket scientists to know. In the United States of America today, are we building up righteousness or taking it down? So do you consider the nation being weakened or not? Is being weakened. That means Satan's plans and his goals and his operations are being very effective. But let's, let's stop being all global about it. What about your home? What about your home? What's in your home? What's, is righteousness in your, in your television programming, your DVD programming, your YouTubing, your Facebooking, your Twittering, your, what do you call it, Snapchatting, uh, your WhatsApping? Is righteousness the foundation of your activities? Because if it's not, then your family and your home is weakened. Which means Satan is not only being effective on the nation scale, he's being effective in the, in the home. What's your private life like? That's the real deal, right? When no one's looking, when you're not at the pulpit, when you're not in front of everyone else, when you don't have to fake the funk. What is your life like? Remember, we're in a warfare. We're born in the midst of a warfare. We're born in the midst of a struggle, in the midst of a fight. And that struggle is not always outward, right? I don't know. I, I have these inner fights. Do you guys have these inner fights? I have these inner fights. People don't know about the, but they're deadly inside. It's ruthless inside my being. I, I, don't, I don't know. If you, maybe you're not fighting. Maybe it's not so bad with you. But it's tough inside sometimes, my friends. It's a warfare. And the greatest battle that we fight is not against the papacy. The greatest battle that we fight is not against the, the great apostasies in the church. The, great, uh, the greatest fight that we have to fight is the battle against that's what it is. So maybe our keen focus shouldn't be all those things. Maybe it should be what's going on here. Amen? But let's go a little bit further. I want you to go to the book of Psalms. Psalms, Psalms, Psalms 97. Psalms 97. 
Psalms 97. We're looking at verse 2. Psalms 97 in verse 2. Notice what the scripture says. Psalms 97 in verse 2. It says, clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. Now that word habitation, in my study margin and in the New King James Version, it actually says are the foundation of his throne. Righteousness is the foundation of God's throne. It's the same thing that is the foundation of every nation on earth, the same thing that's the foundation of all our homes. The foundation of God's throne is righteousness. Righteousness, my friends. Let's go a little bit further. Psalms 119, 172. Let's identify righteousness, just in case there was any confusion. Psalms 119, 172. The Bible says, My tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are, what's it say? So, let's back up, because I'm really just, I'm not really trying to make you flattered with my words or the oratorial corporis. I just want you to really understand the idea. So there's this great controversy in heaven. There's Christ and his church, the devil and his people. Christ and his seed, the devil and his apostate powers. We have this idea that Lucifer had a high position, and his position was anointed covering cherub. The anointed covering cherub responsibility was to protect and, and, and guard that covenant or the Ten Commandment law. It was to protect and guard that character and person of God, but he doesn't do that. He actually attacks righteousness. We see that the center of the sanctuary, the very focal point of the sanctuary, is that testimony, the tabernacle of testimony, the candlesticks in front of the testimony, the shoe bread in front of the testimony, the testimony is out of the ark of the testimony. Everything's about the testimony. We see that the foundation of all our governments, the foundation of all our homes, the foundation of all happiness, true joy in the world is this testimony. It is righteousness, my friends. And that's what this warfare is over. But let's go a tad bit further. We'll pass that. We've emphasized that point. I want, to, I want to highlight this. You, you see this tabernacle as a pattern of something bigger. Exodus 25 and verse 9, it says, According to all that I showed thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall I make it. And look that thou make them after their pattern, which is showed thee in the mount. So this pattern, this tabernacle that is on planet earth, is a pattern of something in the heavenly realms. Does everybody follow that? So this tabernacle of testimony, there is a replica of it somewhere in heaven, greater, more beautiful, more glorious, but it's still a pattern of something in heaven. Now, I, ooh, let's, I'm going to show this, but I'm going to pass it. I'm going to come back to that, okay? I want to go here. We have God's character. In Leviticus 11:44 says God's character is holy. In uh, Romans chapter 7 and verse 12, it says God's law is holy. In Psalms 31 verse 5, it says God's character is truth. In Malachi chapter 2 verse 6, it says God's law is truth. In Psalms 145 verse 17, it says God's character is righteous. In Psalms 119, 172, which we just read, it says God's law is righteous. When we see in Matthew 5, 48, it says God's character is perfect. And then we see in Psalms 19, verse 7, it says God's law is perfect. We see in John 4, verse 24, that God's character is spiritual. And then we see in Romans chapter 7, verse 14, that God's law is spiritual. We see God's character is eternal in 1 Timothy verse 1, verse 17. Then we see God's law is eternal in Psalms 111, and verse 7 and 8. We see God's character is unchangeable in James 1, verse 17. Then we see that God's law is unchangeable in Psalms, 1, um, Psalms 89 and verse 34. We see God is love in 1 John 4 and verse 8. 
And we see that God's law is a law of love in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 through 40. So when we see Lucifer attacking righteousness, we see him attacking God's character. This was a direct affront on God's character. This was character assassination. Let's go a little bit further. Uh, before I go here, before I go here, I want to go back for a moment. I'm going to go back here. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Stay with me, my friends. In John chapter 1, beginning at verse number 1. My favorite passages in the scriptures right here. In fact, you might hear me quote this every sermon because <laughs> I love it so much. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, and was not, and, and, and what does it say? And all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the, what's it say? It was the light of men. Now, pay attention for a moment. The Word. I wish I could really illustrate this. Sometimes I like to bring up videos and just like show, but just, I want you to think about this for a second. Anybody in here can create anything just by speaking. Let there be light. Let there be a firmament. Let there be fish in the sea. Just please use your sanctified imagination. It's okay. Think about this. God spoke, let there be fish, and fish just did. God spoke, let there be birds, and not just one type of bird. It was all sorts of birds, just fluttering and flying around. God spoke it, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood still. We're talking about the word. Are you following what I'm saying? This word was God, and verse 14 says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now, for a moment. If you don't mind, please pull your skin. Can you pull that? Okay, pull. Don't pull somebody else's. Pull your own. Pull your own skin. It might wake you up. Pull your skin. All right. So this is skin. This is flesh. I really have a hard time with this one. The Word put this on. The Word put this on. And walked around in it. Don't think, don't think he put somebody else. Think about it. He put your flesh on. The word put flesh on and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten father, full of grace and truth. But in this. I, my brain begins to kind of process this idea. Why is it that he put this flesh on? What is it that he's trying to demonstrate by putting this on? And the Bible gives us clear answer. In fact, hold your hand in John. No, before you go away from John, I want you to look at verse number 18 for a moment. Look at verse 18. John, ver John 1 verse 18. Look at what it says. It says, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, again, understanding that there's a warfare. There's a warfare between God and Lucifer. Lucifer is in the very presence of God. You can almost say like he's in the bosom. He's tight. All the other angels don't get access like Lucifer does. Lucifer comes out, begins to talk. The angels that don't have access begin to listen. Because he has access, they don't have access. He must know something. It's very interesting. And again, I, I, I don't like um, taking these spiritual concepts and trying to make them so mundane. But just for instance, right now, Donald Trump is president, yeah? So there's this woman, um, Amorosa is her name? Yeah. All right. So Amorosa was in the bosom of Trump. Yeah. She's tight with him. You paying attention? I'm using this as a very mundane way of explaining the concept. But she comes out now and she's just like, just, just raking this brother, destroying him. 
So, of course, it gives fodder to those who already don't like the man. And then it also amplifies the idea with some others, but maybe he is a racist. Maybe, you know, and I'm not here to talk politics. I don't care about that. My, my idea is very simple. The principle is what I'm bringing out is there is someone that comes from the bosom of the father who actually began to lie on God. So there, in fact, you ever hear somebody, they, uh, they, get, they get accused of something, and when they're accused of it, they say, I didn't do it. Now, when they say they didn't do it, you probably don't believe them. They look more guilty. The more they say, I didn't do it, the more guilty they look. So it usually takes someone that is more trustworthy outside of them to come validate to say they didn't do it. You follow the idea? So Jesus, who's in the bosom of the Father, comes from the presence of the Father, demonstrates to humanity what God is all about, and says this is what the Father is really like. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So think about it for a moment. Have you seen Jesus? I've seen him. With children, he loves children. Some parents and some old folks don't like children. They think children are too rambunctious. Jesus didn't mind children being rambunctious. In fact, Jesus didn't mind children crawling on top of his head. He didn't mind. I've seen it. Have you seen it? I've seen Jesus deal with people that are hurting and in pain, and Jesus was tender and soft. Jesus is the most wonderful character, my friends. And Je- listen now, Jesus is not just wonderful because he's, he's highly intelligent. Have you seen him when they tried to entrap him? How he's just, br- I mean, they try to get him, and he's like, he has nothing to say, he just bends down. <laughs> Rice on the ground. He's brilliant. I, I'm a, I watch him. When I watch him in the scriptures, I see how he does. I said, I just want to be like him. Just, he's just so brilliant and so beautiful and so strong, but so meek at the same I just like, Lord, please help me be like Jesus. But Jesus said, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. This is what the Father's like. You, uh, and think about it now. You think about it for a moment. Woman caught in adultery. Now, you would think the father would throw thunderbolts down and burn her up because she was caught in adultery. Huh? You would think because she was in apostasy some way that he would just, and just think about this for a moment. See, the Pharisees were so arrogant in regards to religiosity, right, that if I were Jesus, I would just destroy them. Just eliminate them from the processes. That way no one else is confused by their behavior. But Jesus is so merciful even to the Pharisees. Yes, he speaks strong words, but he still deals patiently. In fact, think of, again, I, re- I reference John 8 for a reason. Do you realize when Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees, when he writes in the ground the sins of each one, he literally writes them in sand, and then when someone else comes, he blows it away so that no one else gets to see all the dirt that the Pharisees themselves did? Even with the Pharisees, he did not publicly make them look bad all the time. He was merciful, my friends, patient, kind. And when it was time, of course, hypocrites, you know, he'd get in. But it takes extreme wisdom, my friends. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But let's go for a moment to the book of Romans, the book of Romans. And it's okay, we're studying, yes, my friends? Only a few of you like to study. I'll take the few. Romans, 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 the eighth chapter. Romans, the eighth chapter. And we're going to begin at verse number one. And again, my friends, we're just, we're taking a look at something that you already know. In Romans, the eighth chapter, beginning at verse number one, the Bible says, There is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, But after what, my friends? The spirit, for watch this now, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and what? Well, let me explain for a moment what a law is. So, for instance, uh, let's go to the top of this building and you jump off the building. Think for a moment. What law will be in effect as you begin to descend to hurt yourself? That will be the law of gravity, yes? 
So whether you like it or not, whether you choose for it to work or not, gravity is going to work because it is a, it is a law. Now, again, read the passage again with that idea firmly in your mind. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of what? Sin and what? That's interesting. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Now watch, we're talking about Christ taking on flesh. In that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemn sin where? Y'all not hearing this thing. Watch this now. Watch, watch, watch. Because if you can get this, then you can be a Christian. If you can get the point that I'm going to bring to you right now that we're going to open from the script, that the Holy Spirit is trying to break in, then you can be a Christian. I want you to be a Christian. I don't want you to. Here's my greatest fear, my greatest fear. That we as a people would meet every seventh day, occasionally on Tuesday or Wednesdays, and once a year at convocation, and not be Christians. That would be like horrible. When we would have access to what heaven has to offer and we would still leave here unconverted. So again, let's look at the passage. Let's look at what it's saying. I want to make sure that we don't run past it. And Father, I just ask for your spirit to make it more plain. It says in verse 3, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemn sin in the... Okay, so, so this is how this works. Normally, you have a desire, a craving of some sort. It could be, let's make it, let's make it something small. Let's just say you like to eat chocolate. Again, I'm using something small. I'm, I'm using as an example. I'm not saying that this is, okay, just stay with me. So let's just say you like chocolate, and this desire wells up inside of you to like chocolate, to go after chocolate. Now, again, you don't have to use chocolate. You can use whatever it normally comes to you, okay? So let's say it comes to you. Your flesh naturally is going to say, let's go get that chocolate. Yeah? Let's go get that chocolate. Now, if you are a superficial conservative, then you might say, I'm not going to eat that chocolate right now because there are people watching. But when I'm by myself, I'm going in. I mean, that's the superficial conservative. That's the ones that wear the, you know, nice dresses and nice suits and preach the strong sermons. But in the background, we're still doing the, you know, the stuff we ain't supposed to do. Y'all hear what I'm saying? I'm saying it with a smile. We're told very clearly that the superficial conservative will be swept out of the church. Superficial. Because it ain't real. We are this way because the group is this way. I got to fit in with the present truthers, you know. See, the, the whole idea is to be genuine Christians, to be Christians from the inside out. So what happens is Jesus puts this on. But he doesn't just put this on. He is holy from the inside. So as he's walking in human flesh, flesh cries out for chocolate. Not by the power of the Holy Spirit, not going for chocolate. I will not go for that. I reckon myself likewise dead indeed unto sin, but alive in the God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Whatever the Spirit says do, that's what I want to do. Whatever the Spirit says go, that's where I want to go. Flesh, you're dead. Now every time, now listen to, listen to me carefully. Every time Jesus chose to follow the Spirit and not the flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, when you and I become Christians, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit then decides to live inside of us. As the Spirit of God lives inside of us, 
There is no temptation such as is common to man, but God will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to do what? Only one person knows it. That you may be able to bear it. So, the Christian has no justification to intentionally, willfully violate righteousness or the law of God. Because Jesus lived his life in this flesh, he lived it perfectly, never sinning one time, and condemned sin in the flesh, now watch the next part, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled where? In us who walk not after the what? Flesh, but after what? So that means then we have an opportunity. Listen, every time there's an opportunity to come together, every time there's an opportunity to open the word of God, every time we have an opportunity to come away from the world and focus. Listen, if they have Wi-Fi here and you want to get on Wi-Fi, I would encourage you not to. Unless you're preparing like some type of sermon, maybe. Even then, your Bible and the Holy Spirit should be able to download information. I'm encouraging you while you have the opportunity to come aside and rest a while, that you find a way to link up with our power source. So that the righteousness of the law will find its fulfillment in us who walk not after the flesh, but after what? We want to be spirit-filled believers, brothers and sisters. We want to be spirit-filled. What would be the, listen, like for me, like, okay, so I just, I, I just turned 40 years old. I'm like, that's crazy, 40, like for real? So I turned 40. Number one, I'm happy, sad. I'm happy that I lived another year. I'm sad because Jesus hasn't come. Right? Like, there's that happy, sad thing. I'm not going to tell you the many other thoughts that came to my mind about being mortal and nearly ready to die now halfway to 70. You're only promised 70 years in life. You know, I'm not going to go there and explain all that to you. But I'm just thinking to myself, 40 years and we're still here. And I'm, do I want my daughter to get to 40? Dude. Do I want to live, do I want to be here another 10 years and just watch the world just kind of just compound and compound and, and, and just sin just gets worse and worse? Do I, do I want that? Is there any way possible that I could help stop the pain? Is there any way possible? The answer is yes. Let me hasten. I want to show you something. In Romans chapter 8, I want us to keep reading, and I'm going to get to a, another key point, and then I need to stop because I, I have three other presentations that I could build on. But let's just go Romans chapter 8. Look carefully now. We read verse 4. I want to read verse 5. It says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Wait, isn't that something that we read, but in the opposite way, that God's going to put enmity in our hearts against sin and the devil and the seed? Yeah, we read that right. But here, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed, what's it say? So it's impossible for the carnal mind to live righteously. It will never, ever, ever be subject to God. So this is why it's so strange that Christians would seek to serve God with a carnal mind. Christians seek to have a renewed mind. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who thought it not robbery, that he was equal to God, but humbled himself, became like a servant. Lucifer says, I will ascend. Jesus says, I will come down. Lucifer says, I will be like the most high. Jesus says, I will become like the most low. Complete opposites. I tell you the truth. 
And this is something that we're constantly learning, you know, as people, right? So as a family, what I have to learn is, yes, I'm the head of the family, but I need to be the servant of all. The servant of all. Sometimes I think we think too highly of ourselves. That's why we're always offended. Hmm? Why are you offended? Because you think highly of yourself. You think highly of your opinion. You think, how about being humble? But that's not something you could do with your carnal mind. The carnal mind would not let you be humble, my friends. The carnal mind will not let you be humble. Only the, Christ, the mind of Christ will help you be humble. But let, let's go a little bit further. I want to jump down to this one last part, and we're going to get to the answer to this question. In verse number 18, it says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Pay attention now. For the earnest expectation of the creature, or the creation, waiteth for the manifestation of what, my friends? Creation is waiting for the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity. We're going to come back to this tomorrow morning. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who have subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until, what's it say, my friends? Until now. So the other day, I was perusing uh, a, a news article. And they were talking about this orca well. Have you, seen, have you heard about the orca well? The orca well, have you heard about it, Niasia? The orca well. The orca had a baby. And apparently, this pack of whales has been around for like 75 years or longer. They've just been around, this pack of whales. But this, these pack of whales, I'm saying pack, it's probably not a pack. The wolves are packs. What do you call it? Pod. Thank you, my brother. This pod of whales, as they are floating along there, their, their generations are being shortened. But anyway, this mother orca had a baby, and the baby died. But that's not the sad part. The baby dies. The mother orca carries the baby. Now, the, she begins to carry the baby for one week. Carries it for two weeks. Carries it for 17 days. After the 17th day, news organizations from around the world began to focus their cameras on this orca well, saying that this was highly unusual. After it went on for more than a month, now they're saying this is unprecedented. Think about it. The orca well is carrying a dead baby for over a month. You think she's in travail? I was asking the Lord, man, because the Lord, when the Lord speaks, he speaks through nature. We have never seen a whale do that before. To the point where all the world is paying attention to this well. The well is groaning and moaning and waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Where are the sons of God? Where are the daughters of God? Where are the children that look like Jesus? Where are those that would care for their environment, care for their society, care for their homes like Jesus would? The whole world is in travail waiting for the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God. I want to I end on this passage. Go with me to the book of John. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, look at verse 12. But as many as received him. Listen now. But as many as received him. 
to them gave he power to become the sons and daughters of God, even to them that believe on his name. Hmm. Can I read it again? But as many as received him, condition, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Which were, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here's my appeal. Every time I stand up here, I'm going to go in on an appeal. There's no point in going through these sermons without making a decision. Here's my question to you Have you truly received Him? Have you received the Son of the Most High God? Is Jesus truly the Lord of your life? Is he really? Because it says, but as many as received him, Jesus, to them gave he power. That same power, that same dunamis, that power is referenced in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2. You shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. If you receive the Son, then you receive power. You receive an outpouring of His Spirit. Have you received the Son? Inspiration tells us that when we say the name of Jesus with meekness and reverence, angels draw near. Our Father in heaven, you see us standing. Our hearts are kneeling. Some of us stand in true trembling, Father, knowing that as we stand to accept your Son, that everything in our experience will change. Fathers, in times like these that you promised to pour out your spirit upon your church, and I know why the enemy was so afraid of these meetings. I know why he tried to discourage my heart, because he wants to hide Jesus from our view. Father, I pray for a special revelation of your dear son. Make it so plain and so clear that the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Please live in our hearts, Father. Take full possession of everything that we have. Take our hearts, for we cannot give them there your property. Keep them, for we cannot keep them for thee. Save us from ourselves, our weak, unchristlike selves. And please fill us with the sweet influence of your spirit of love that flows through our souls. Thank you, Father. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, and we claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.